This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg One fourteen in the middle of chapter 7 So everything in this world is divided into three parts a holy object, an object or experience which is prohibited, and then you have a kosher. Kosher, all kosher means is that it's permitted. doesn't mean it's a mitzvah, doesn't mean it's holy. It means it's, a, it's kosher. It's in between. It can go either way. It has the potential to go, to go either way, but it's entirely up to us. We determine, the year determines whether we're going to elevate that object or whether we're going to degrade that object, whether that experience will be an elevated experience. Or that experience will be a degrading experience. Even if you eat klat kosher, you can have, you can be experiencing something which is technically by the books is 100% kosher. But it all depends on the person. Where is the person at? Is the person himself elevated? Does the person have a holy intent? Are you thinking about the divine? Or not? If you think about the divine, then you elevate that experience. That experience, you elevate the godly spark inside that object and you connected to its source, to its root, then that object becomes holy, is elevated into the realm of holiness. If, however, you have a negative intention, or if you have no intention, you're just going about your business, going about your business without any divine intent. So automatically that experience becomes a degrading experience, because you have disconnected that experience from its source, from godliness. So it's entirely up to us. So not only is a Jew plugged in that we have the opportunity, the ability to make something holy, we have the ability to take a physical object, and by performing a mitzvah with that object, we have the ability to sanctify that object. The Torah scroll, which is made of leather hide of an animal, actually becomes holy because the Jew has written it. Not only because we're connected, we have the ability to commit a sin, which is also only because we're plugged in and connected that we have the ability to, to commit the sin and to increase in, in, in negative energy. But in addition, we affect and change everything that we interact with. As we go about our daily business, our daily lives, everything that we interact with, we change. We can transform, we can elevate, or if we do not elevate, automatically we degrade that experience in that action. So we are, the, um, we are the master of change, and it's entirely up to us. And now he's going to give an example of neutral objects, culture objects, which have the potential to be elevated, which can go either way. It's entirely up to us. For instance, second paragraph on the bottom, page 114. For instance, if one eats fat beef and drinks spiced wine, not out of physical desire, but in order to broaden his mind to the service of God and his Torah, as Rava said, wine and fragrance make my mind more receptive. If someone eats like a choice meat, steak, fat beef, and he drinks expensive wine, Now, usually you would associate this activity with indulgence. You have a good taste in in meats, you have good taste in wine, and you're indulging. But the truth is it doesn't have to be that way. It all depends on, it's all personal, it's all subjective. It all depends on where the person is at. The person could eat that meat, and what motivates him to eat that meat, the intention behind it is to strengthen him, because we know that eating meat strengthens a person. Children need meat, and also adults, it strengthens, strengthens your person. Some people need it more than others. But it strengthens you, and it gives your mind the strength to be able to tackle a difficult subject. If you're trying to learn something, it strengthens your mind. 
gives you the ability to be able to uh, come to comprehend, to tackle a very, a very difficult subject. And the same thing is with wine, good wines. So it's possible, like someone like Rava, who ate fat beef and had fragrant wine. And the intention was in order to make his mind more receptive. So in that case, that experience becomes an elevating experience. A wholesome experience. It's a godly experience. Because the purpose behind it was in order to become closer with Hashem. Since you injected that conscious intention, the act became a different act. It became a holy You've elevated, released the godly sparks, that energy, that positive energy. You've released that positive energy. So when the Torah says something is permitted, it means that there is a positive energy that's waiting to be released. It's trapped inside and waiting to be released. By your intention, by having an intention, L'Shem Shemayim, for the sake of Hashem, you release that positive energy. And therefore it energizes you, rejuvenates you, energizes you, inspires you, and uplifts you, and it becomes a wholesome experience. If, however, you would not have a mind for the sake of heaven, you're just eating delicious meat, having a good barbecue, and you're enjoying a delicious wine just for the sake of the sensual pleasure of eating, eating delectable food and drinking delicious wine, then that experience becomes a degrading experience. Because you have not released that divine energy that's trapped inside that wine and that meat. And on the contrary, you've degraded that energy and caused it to become even more imprisoned than it was before. And it becomes more hidden and more concealed and becomes more disconnected from its root, from its source. So it becomes a, 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 an event, an experience that's split off from its source. And it becomes a degrading experience is wearying on the soul and actually becomes a, degrade, a degrading experience. So this is, this is entirely up to us. A, or, he gives another example, how one could eat fat beef, choice piece of beef, and drink fancy wine, and yet it should be a godly experience, a wholesome experience, an uplifting experience. Or in order to fulfill the commandment to enjoy the Sabbath and the festivals. In the latter case, his eating and drinking are not merely the means to a spiritual end, as in the previous example, but are a mitzvah in themselves. For we are enjoined to enjoy the Sabbath and festivals through eating meat and drinking wine. So here he's touching on a very profound point. We find two expressions in the Torah. One is... When a person goes about his daily life, his business, everything he does should be l'shem shemayim, for the sake of heaven. That your goal, your purpose should be for the sake of heaven. But then there's another expression, written by King Solomon. Bechol, In all your ways, you know God. There's a big difference between the two. When you say, do something for the sake of heaven, that means that the act itself is a mundane act. But my intent, my purpose is for the sake of heaven. When you say to know God in all your ways, that means that you're actually serving God. It's not just a means to an end. But as I go about my daily life and my business, I am serving God through eating, through the act of eating. And these are the two examples that he brings. One is that I'm eating a choice piece of beef and I'm drinking delicious fancy wine, but the purpose is to serve Hashem. That is L'shem Shemayim for a higher goal, a higher purpose. But then he brings another example, where the act of eating itself is a mitzvah, like eating on Shabbos and Yom. And this is really a higher level of eating, which really a person could accomplish throughout the week, not only on Shabbos and Yom. When a person realizes and recognizes, as we read last week's Torah portion, the question is, how do we understand the whole idea of eating? How is eating beneficial? You can't give what you don't have. How is it possible that by eating something that's dead, how can that give you life and vitality? Something that's already cut off from its source, that's dead, you can't give what you don't have. So how can eating help you? And the answer is, 
in last week's Torah portion, as explained by the Arizal and the Kabbalists, that a person doesn't live just on bread alone. A person lives on the divine energy that creates the bread. So when you say that the bread or the uh, fruit or the vegetable or the animal is not alive, it's not true. It is alive. Otherwise, it would cease to exist. There's a divine energy that's creating and sustaining this apple and this, this piece of meat, this cup of water. Everything has a divine energy. So it has a vitality. It has a life. And it's that life that sustains you. And the act of eating is actually to release that inner energy. And therefore, ethics of our fathers compares our table to an altar. Because the act of eating is actually our way of serving God. We don't only serve God by studying Torah and doing mitzvot. We also serve God when we eat. Because when we're eating, what we're doing is we're releasing that divine energy and reconnecting it to its source. So the act of eating itself becomes a spiritual experience. It's not just I'm eating because I'm hungry, because it's a natural need and tendencies, and I need my vitamins, and I need my uh, uh, nutrients. There's something much deeper going on. Just like you have vitamins and nutrients that support the body, you also have spiritual vitamins and spiritual nutrients that are found in this food item. And it's that, those spiritual vitamins and nutrients, that divine energy that's actually sustaining and, 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 and revitalizing so the act of eating is actually a spiritual experience. It's a way of worshiping God, of connecting God by taking another piece of this world and by connecting it to its source, by eating appropriately and by being aware, as we say, about, say in the blessing, and by being aware of the blessing and in the meaning of the blessing and concentrating on the blessing. Baruch Hashem Everything is created with a divine energy. And by drinking this cup of water, it's that divine energy that's actually sustaining me and, and, um, and giving me vitality. So the act of eating is actually a divine experience. So it's not just a means to an end. I'm eating in order to give me strength to be able to study Torah, in order to be able to, to do mitzvot, in order to be able to give tzedakah. I'm doing business in order to be able to earn money, in order to be able to serve Hashem. No. The act itself becomes a divine act. The act of eating itself becomes a divine act, a divine connection. When I'm doing business, I am God's ambassador. And I am connecting with, with Hashem. And I open my eyes to see the open divine providence and the miracles in, in the person's business life. So this is a much deeper level. The first level is that I am eating in order for a higher purpose, to get strength, to make my mind more receptive, to be able to study Torah better. But then there's a deeper level, a deeper connection where the act of eating itself becomes a mitzvah. For example, eating on Shabbos and eating in Yom. When one eats and drinks in the above-mentioned manner, then the vitality of the meat and the wine which originated in Klipanoga is then extracted from the evil and ascends to... God like a burnt offering and sacrifice. The life force of Kripanoga that the food and drink contain is absorbed in sanctity. So because of your intention, you've caused the divine energy that was formerly trapped inside this food, you've helped it release and redeem it and connect it to a source, a sin. Just like an offering. When you make a burnt offering, the fire the animal ascends, ascends upward. So too, you cause the energy to ascend upward. And now he gives another example. So too concerning speech. The vitality of words spoken for a sacred purpose ascends and is absorbed in sanctity. For example, he who makes a humorous remark to sharpen his mind and make his heart rejoice in God and his Torah and service, which should be practiced joyfully. As Robert was wont to do with his pupils, prefacing his discourse with a humorous remark, whereupon the students became cheerful and thereby more receptive and better able to understand the discourse. When a humorous remark is made with this intent, the vitality of the words, which originates in Klipanoga, is extracted from the evil of Klipanoga and is absorbed into sanctity. If a person is just doing comedy for the sake of comedy is a very thin line between 
you know, just frivolity or using comedy for a higher purpose. Using a little comic relief for a higher purpose. Talmud says that the Rav, although his learning was very cheerful, as it is a very cheerful learning, but nevertheless, even he would use, utilize humor to ease his student's mind. That's where, that's the source. Rabbis start the sermons with a, a little joke, break the ice. And that's very important, although it's only superficial and external, it's like a, 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 not even an introduction to the speech or to the lecture. But nevertheless, it's a very important preface, very important introduction. Because by, through humor, and um, you know, putting everyone at ease, it opens everyone up, enabling them to receive the serious, serious subject matter. And your mind is put at ease, and you feel relaxed, you feel comfortable, of the little comic relief, then you're open to serious study. So in the beginning, he would start off with humor, something light, and then he would turn serious. The actual teaching itself, it says the students have to sit with awe in front of their teacher. Because in order to learn, you have to, in order to receive, you have to, your mind has to be sharp and alert, and the more uh, awe-inspired the students are in the presence of their teacher, the more receptive they'll be to the teaching, this teaching. However, before you begin with the actual teaching, the, uh, the, 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 student, the teacher would invariably start with humor. Relax everyone, put everyone, put everyone at ease. And this is an important. Um, so, if a person uses humor, usually you don't associate comedy and humor with holiness and sanctity. You know, you associate humor with uh, comic clubs, and and yet here you have an example of utilizing something that's kosher. Humor can go either way. It's not. It's not evil, it's not negative, it's not prohibitive I'm not, we're not talking about negative humor or prohibitive humor not kosher humor, but humor but it depends what the purpose is if it's an end in itself if it's just humor, just to be frivolous that's prohibited as a matter of fact we learned that that's one of the clip at Noga, that's one of the prohibited that's one of the um, aspects that derive from wind within the soul a person who's a, a windbag who's light and frivolous and empty expresses himself his entire life is just one big uh, one big joke and everything is a joke and nothing is serious that's a negative but if a person utilizes this neutral um, neutral act for a higher purpose then that act becomes a holy purpose you actually sanctify the human you can sanctify storytelling you sanctify singing Everything that we do could be sanctified. If you use it for a higher purpose, if you connect it to a higher purpose. On the other hand, if a person is one of those who gluttonously eat meat and quaff wine in order to satisfy their bodily appetites and animal soul, then since of the animal soul's four evil elements, this desire belongs to the element of water, from which comes the appetite for pleasures. As explained in the first chapter, all evil characteristics come from the four evil elements of the animal soul, with the appetite for pleasures emanating from the mint of water. So sensuality, the pursuit of sensuality and pleasure that derives from the element of water. Uh, frivolity, and uh, that derives from the element of wind. So that's actually a negative. It's an ego expression. And in such case, continue... In such case, the vitality of the meat and wine that he ingested is thereby degraded and absorbed temporarily in the utter evil of the three unclean people. So as long as it was left alone before the experience, it was neutral. It could go either way. But now that you've actually utilized it in a frivolous way, without any higher intent, the person causes that divine spark, that divine energy, actually to degrade, degrades that, that, that energy. Descend, that energy now descends into the level of Klippa, which is totally cut off and disconnected from his divine source and root.
becomes totally distant and you don't see any connection to the divine because everything is being recreated each and every moment the divine energy is creating that meat and creating that wine and yet you've now utilized this wine in a way that you don't see any connection to its root, to its source if you utilize it for the divine you inject a higher purpose then you're connecting that wine to its real reality its divine source, the divine energy but now you've degraded it, you've, you've further disconnected it, you've covered it up, you've hidden it and concealed it even more than it was on its own. So you've degraded it, and you become degraded in the process. Continue. His, the glutton's body, becomes a garment and a vehicle for these people. The term vehicle is an analogy for total subservience, just as a vehicle is completely subservient to the will of its driver, having no will of its own. So, in this case, is this person totally subservient to the three unclean people? The Jewish soul, which actually derives its sustenance and its life force from the klipat noga, now becomes a vehicle for the three klipat, which are totally and absolutely impure. So the soul has been degraded as a result of this encounter, as a result of this experience. But, with a but, with a caveat. The but is that the degradation is not absolute. There is a possibility for redemption. There is a possibility for change. There always remains a possibility for change. Even after the experience, even after the negative experience, a person could still turn it around. Because since the experience itself was not from the realm of the three klipot, which is absolutely impure, which is absolutely irredeemable, since it, it's, a kosher, it's kosher, it comes from the neutral realm, from Klippat Noga, the intermediate realm, which does have the potential to be elevated. Since it has the potential to be elevated, it retains that potential. Even after, you've blew, even after you blew it, and you've caused this degradation, but nevertheless, it still retains that ability to be redeemed and, and re-elevated. But his body remains so only temporarily until a person repents and returns to the service of God and his Torah. Whereupon he ceases to be a vehicle for the people, the energy of the food and drink is then released from the people and returns to sanctity. What he's saying is that if a person eats, and he eats like a glutton, he eats like a chaza, or even if he doesn't, but he doesn't need for the sake of heaven. He's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about any higher purpose. He's just eating to survive. Survive. He's eating healthy, disciplined, dieting, restrained. But he's not thinking about the divine. And the experience is a negative experience, unholy experience. Then he takes that energy and he studies Torah with that energy. And he performs a mitzvah with that energy, a good deed as a result of that energy. Well, let's say he exercised, but he wasn't thinking about the divine. He wasn't thinking, I need to exercise in order to be strong, to have the strength to be able to study Torah and do mitzvah. I'm exercising because I enjoy exercising. Or, or just to survive. I just like, like to look good. Which then, that experience becomes an unholy experience. But then you take that strength and that energy you've acquired, and you utilize it to study Torah to do mitzvah then you've elevated that experience, that energy that formerly was degraded, that you've redeemed and released that energy. You've, you've changed the status of that energy. Now that you've utilized this energy for a holy purpose, now this energy becomes elevated. Because although it, it descended into the three klippot, it was only temporary. Because since, at the, in essence, it comes from Klippat Noga, from the intermediate, from the neutral, which can go either way, it retains that, that property. So even after it's degraded and descends into the three Klippot, it still retains that ability to change and to be re-elevated. So when the person has a change of heart, or the person utilizes that energy, takes that energy and does a mitzvah with it, then you release that energy and... You turn around the whole experience and then it becomes a wholesome experience. And you release that energy and reconnect it to its source, that divine energy. So that's what he says. Since the meat and wine were kosher. As much as the meat and wine were kosher and permissible, and it was only the person's desire for pleasure that degraded them, 
he had the power to revert and ascend with him when he returned to the service of God, at which time the strength gained from the food and drink are utilized in serving God. This is implied in the terms heter, permissibility, and mutar, permissible, that which may be done or eaten is called mutar, literally meaning released or unbound. He's now going to explain, you know, people have a misunderstanding about kosher. Why does a Jew have to eat kosher? Some people think it's because of health reasons, trichinosis, they didn't have the, uh, the uh, Department of Health, right? <laughs> Department of Health. Today we have a modern, we live in a modern society, it's unnecessary. It's nothing to do with the food. Right, it has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with health, not health. The Torah is eternal. Some say it's because you are what you eat. Person, you are what you eat. So if you eat food that's not kosher, you will acquire negative tendencies. The Jewish soul, we are like a uh, very refined engine that needs super unleaded. Some engines are very delicate, very sensitive. You need special fuel. If you use regular fuel, it will actually clog the engine, not allow the engine to function fully. So the Jewish soul and the Jewish sensitivity, in order for a Jewish soul to experience all Jew- the Jewish sensitivity, a person, we need super unleaded. We need special foods that enable us to... But here the Alter Rebbe is giving the, the deepest reason why we keep kosher and we don't keep what's kosher, what's not kosher. And he says it's all in the word. It's all in the language. Look at the word that the Torah uses, the Talmud uses. Something is kosher. Something is not kosher. We say something is mutter. Something is permitted. Something is forbidden. Food which is forbidden and food which is permitted. Experiences that are forbidden. Experiences that are permitted. What's the etymological root of the word forbidden? Or permitted. Mutar means unbound. Forbidden means asur, to release. Like releasing someone from prison. Something is forbidden. Asur. Asur means it's tied, imprisoned, bound up. She says that's the difference between something that's kosher and something that's not kosher. When the Torah says something is kosher, the Torah is eternal. The Torah is saying that the divine spark that's found in this object could be unbound, could be untied, could be released, could be redeemed. When the Torah says something is prohibited, food is prohibited, or certain experiences are prohibited, the Torah is saying that the divine spark, the kernel, the divine spark that exists, that's here, that's animating and creating this, this object, or this experience, this divine spark is trapped, is irredeemable. It's in a super reinforced bunker, concrete bunker, which even Israel's super bombs cannot reach. You can't reach it. You can't destroy it. It's there. It's trapped. And therefore, the Torah says that domesticated animals are kosher. The predatory animals are not kosher. Predatory fish are not kosher. Predatory birds. What does that mean? That means domesticated animals which are more domesticated and more tender, showing characteristics which are not so aggressive, it means that the divine, that divine spark within this, these animals are not so hidden, they're not so concealed. They're not so far from the source. They haven't been so far removed from the source. But when you have predatory birds or predatory animals, that means that these objects or these living creatures or these experiences have been so, are displaying tendencies which are the antithesis of godliness and kindness and gentleness and goodness. That means they've been so far removed from their source that the inner source has been so concealed, so covered up, so hidden, so obstructed that it's inaccessible. You cannot access that source. So no matter how hard a person tries, you cannot access those objects. With those experiences. You cannot release it. You cannot redeem it. So the Torah says it's forbidden. It's off limits. You can't touch it. Hands off. You cannot elevate this experience. You cannot elevate this object. Because the divine spark is trapped. And you don't have the power to release this, this divine spark. 
When the Torah says something is permitted, all the Torah is saying, the Torah is not saying it's a holy, it's holy, it's automatically holy, because something is glat kosher. No. All the Torah is saying is that it's neutral. It has the ability, the potential to be released. You could release, you could redeem the divine energy inside it. Because the shell is a klipat noga, is a shell that some of the inside penetrates. Some of that inner light penetrates. It's not totally obscured. It's not totally opaque. There's some goodness to it. It's, it's not a predatory animal. It's, it's, it's an, domesticated animals. It shows some kindness. It shows, shows some goodness. Which is a sign for us that the animal is not, that the divine light is not impenetrable. We could access it. How? Depends on us. Whatever conscious intention we bring to the experience, if we go about it in a holy way and we're thinking holy thoughts, then we have the ability to release this energy from its track. And that kind of goes for everything. Not everything, but like a lot of everything that's neutral. Right. Like not prayer, because that's automatically good. Exactly. Exactly. A mitzvah. Automatically bad. Exactly. Exactly. Like a sin. Exactly. And then there's a whole all the neutral. Exactly. Exactly. The whole neutral arena. Which, which occupies most of our time. Okay. Eating, sleeping, right. doing business, Working, drinking, goodness. doing... Right, exactly. Interacting, entertainment, relaxing, everything. If you do a mitzvah, a mitzvah, you don't need any intention. The mitzvah itself is holy. Yeah. You did have intention. You didn't have intention. Even if you're walking down the street and you lose money and you're upset, but you saved someone's life. A poor person found that, finds that money and you saved his life, you have a mitzvah. The mitzvah is done. The deed is done. Intentions are not so crucial, not critical. Because the mitzvah is holy. The object itself is holy. But when it comes to anything that's neutral, which is the whole arena of our lives, our whole theater of activity, that's entirely dependent on our consciousness. We have to be totally aware and conscious and focused, and we have to inject that intent. Whatever we do, there has to be a theme in our lives. We don't just go about it as robots or mechanically, or we don't just compartmentalize our lives. There has to be a theme, a goal for everything, everything in our life, a motivation. And the motivation is, we have to inject a holy thought. And by injecting a holy thought, we release the divine energy that was trapped, that, wasn't, that, that, that was hidden. And now we release it. But when the Torah says something is asur, something is prohibited, the Torah is saying it's off limits. Don't touch it. Don't go there. You can't help the situation. It's trapped. No matter how hard you try. Bunker bombs, it's not going to help. It's not working. It's too deep. It's too hidden, it's too concealed, it's too covered up. And therefore the Torah says, don't touch it. It's off limits for a Jew. Don't go there. Don't touch this, don't experience this. You can't, you can't do anything with it. You can't release it, you can't connect it to its source. What, what, is, what is the purpose of the existence of things that cannot be released? Why are, why are they here? Okay, that we're going to learn about in the next chapter, but... The truth is, the way we release it, the way we release it is by not doing it. When a person is tempted to do a sin and he refrains from doing a sin, he's fulfilling the mitzvah. The mitzvah, the prohibitions are fulfilled when you have the opportunity and you're tempted, and yet you refrain from doing it because Hashem told us not to do it. You know, a thief doesn't have the opportunity to steal, thinks that he's honest. But the mitzvah is when you have the opportunity and you have the temptation and yet because Hashem says stay away, off limits, therefore you stay away. So you're fulfilling the mitzvah and that's how you release the spark. You release the spark by staying away. By defining it as evil. By defining it as hopelessly evil and that that's how you deal with it. You deal with it by staying away. And then it does serve its purpose in yes. creation it's yes. being released. Yes, it serves its purpose. Everything in this world serves a purpose. Some by embracing it and some by, by rejecting it. When you reject evil, you are, it's, evil serves its purpose. By defining good, recognizing good and rejecting evil, and evil serves its purpose. Everything in this world has a purpose. That's the meaning of a divine spark. When you say everything has a divine spark, it means everything has a purpose. God creates everything. He creates evil. Why is he creating evil if he, put, if he placed it off limits? Just to make life difficult for us so we should constantly be tempted? As a matter of fact, the majority of the mitzvot are, pro, are prohibitions. The majority of, of experience is off limits for the Jew. 
most foods are off limits for us, most experiences, most sexual relations. So why did God create all of these realities just to make life so difficult for the Jew? But everything that God creates has a purpose. And therefore, a Jew asks himself, instead of taking everything at face value, a Jew asks himself, what is the purpose? Why is it here? Some things the purpose is to embrace it, wholeheartedly embrace, to engage, engage in the world, elevate the world. And some things you elevate by rejecting, by calling a spade a spade, identifying evil, rejecting evil, staying away from it. That's how you elevate the spark. That's how you fulfill the purpose for why it was created. Everything has a purpose. And then there are things that were created just to be destroyed. Like Amalek, like cancers in the body were created to be totally destroyed. There's no pur- the purpose is to be totally destroyed. So a Jew doesn't take anything at face value. You look at everything and say, what's the purpose? Is this healthy or is this ill? So you have to identify what is health, healthy. You have to identify what is ill, illness, and stay away from illness. And then the certain things have to be totally obliterated and destroyed. So everything, everything we look at, the way a Jew looks at everything that exists in this world, we are a microcosm, but the same is true of the macrocosm. Everything in the world, God created, there are healthy things, there are unhealthy things, and then there are things that have to be totally destroyed, absolute evil. Everything has a purpose. So the purpose is not necessarily people who don't have this divine connection take everything at face value. If it exists, I have to embrace it. It's a reality. I have to deal with it. There are terrorists in this world. I have to deal with it. I have to make peace with them. I have to talk to them. But a Jew doesn't look at the world that way. There are certain realities, certain thin realities that the only purpose God created it is that I should reject it. I should be strong. I should have the character to say no. The strength of character to say no. That's how you release the spark. That's how you redeem it because that's how it fulfills its purpose. That's why the divine spark is there in the first place. It's the only reason for you to have the strength of character to say no and to reject it. So when you say no, it's like breathe as a sigh of relief. Thank God, I fulfilled my purpose. That is its purpose. That's how we fulfill its purpose. It's an obstacle to test us just to... So we should summon the courage to have the strength of character. There's much more of that than there is of the... Yes. The ones that we elevate. Absolutely. It's because like uh, 10 to 1. Of it's not 10 to 1, but it's, it's much more. Mm-hmm. You know, a character... Character is much more defined. It's not by what you... It's by yes, it's by no. It's not by what you do, it's by what, what you won't do. You want to know what a person's character is all about, it's not by things they do, things they embrace, things they love. It's by the red lines they won't cross, by the things they absolutely won't do. That, that gives a person character. A person has boundaries. A person has... That's what etches you. That's what defines you. That's what gives you definition. Otherwise, you're just a blob of ink all over the place. No meaning, no definition, no, no purpose. It's, it's the boundaries. It's the limits. It's what you don't see, what you chip away, what you don't see. Right? What's art? The sculpture is not what you see, it's what you don't see, what you chip away. That's what gives it character and definition. So it's the don'ts that actually reach a person much deeper. Even though I don't see anything, what are the results? I don't see anything, I have nothing to show for it. A mitzvah is a positive. I have something to show for it. It's active, it's, it's a deed. The don'ts, 365 don'ts, I have nothing to show for it. I didn't do anything, nothing happened. But that's what etches deep into your soul. That's what gives you character. That takes depth of character. You have to reach much deeper into your soul. It defines you. And that's how it fulfills its purpose. God created this whole universe, whole arena of don'ts, of prohibitions to actually help define us. And that's how we help the divine spark in all these negative experiences and actions. And by, by staying away from it and by rejecting it. That's when, that's when the divine spark and that negative food or that uh, unholy food and not kosher food breathe, so to speak, a sigh of relief. You've helped me you've helped me release, you've helped me redeem myself. That's the purpose why I was created. That's the purpose why I'm here. So people that do a lot of mischief think that's the whole ball game. Right. And that's I mean, only part of it. Miss, yeah, but, uh, that's only part of it. 
There's the real do- test is in the other world. The real test is in the don'ts. Not only the do's, the don'ts. And here, in this chapter we're discussing, it's not only in the do's and in the don'ts, it's in that whole arena which is neutral. Which is not a do and not a don't. It's not a mitzvah, it's not holy. It's not a don't, it's not absolutely evil, the three evil klippot, it's not prohibited. It's kosher, glad kosher. The whole arena of our human daily activities, the mundane, the ordinary. And that's really the test of a person. That's refinement. Are you bringing Hashem into People every aspect of your life? Rucker, but that doesn't mean they're... That, that's, the, that's the real test. Are you bringing Hashem into every aspect of your life? Are you constantly aware? And are you constantly connected? 100%. Because Hashem is absolute. So that, does, it, does it touch you? Has Hashem touched your life? Absolutely. If you want to know if you're connected with Hashem, Hashem is absolute. Has Hashem touched your life? Absolutely. Has it touched every aspect of your life? Not only the do's, not only the don'ts, but everything in between. That's the real test. That's the real sign. How you go about your daily life. Are you thinking about Hashem? Are you transforming that experience into a holy experience? This is implied in the terms heter, permissibility, and mutar, permissible. That which may be done or eaten is called mutar, literally meaning released or unbound. In our context, the term means that the permissible object is not chained to the klippah. That is to say it is not tied and bound by the power of the extraneous forces, i.e. the klippah and citra akra, which are extraneous to the realm of sanctity, preventing it from returning and ascending to God. Rather, it can return and ascend to God when the person involved returns to the service of God, as explained above. Nevertheless, even when this energy reverts to sanctity through the person's return to the service of God, a trace of the evil remains in the body. Eating permissible food for bodily pleasure causes the food to descend into total evil. Subsequently, the food becomes part of the body. Though repentance elevates not only the person, but also the energy of the food and drink as well, still having become a part of the body, a vestige of evil. Since when you ate it, you ate it without a heavenly intent, without a divine intent, it was just a natural experience, it was a degrading experience, and that food has become part of your bloodstream, and therefore, it leaves a, a, a scar. It leaves a mark on your body, a negative impression on your body. Um, versus if the person who eats, while he eats, he eats for the sake of heaven, which at that moment, the act itself becomes an elevating, a holy act, an elevating experience for his soul as, and for his body. And it elevates him and he's inspired. It's a wholesome experience then there's nothing negative. Everything that he does is holy. But if when a person ate, he ate without a holy intention, it was only later on that he utilizes energy to study Torah and to do mitzvah, thereby elevating not only himself, but also elevating and releasing the divine energy that was in this food. But the fact that in the initially, while he ate it, it was a degrading experience, that leaves a scar in his body. And therefore... For this reason, the body must undergo the purgatory of the grave, as will be explained later. Like all heavenly punishments, purgatory of the grave, too, is a means of spiritual purification. All remaining traces of evil energy created by eating and drinking for bodily pleasure are removed through this punishment. So it's not a punishment, per se. It's a consequence, and it's really a purification. Just like death is the ultimate purification. The death of the ego... So to all the experiences that a person experiences after death, the pain that the, the, the body experiences, and all the different um, experiences and uh, transitions that the soul has to make from this world to the other world, and the body has to make, the, the, the person has to make, as described in the holy books in the Torah. And one of them is Chibut Akeva, the tremendous pain and suffering that the soul experiences from the body, or the body is buried in the ground, and, and um, you know, it's not a pleasant experience. So that, that's a purification process. It's like, a, uh, it's like you take clothes, clothes that have been soiled. You have to wash the clothes. So you have to push it in the, put it in the washer. You put strong detergents. 
Sometimes you have to scrub it, scrape it, beat it. You know the clothes is going to come out good, clean. And that's a, an analogy in the soul. The soul is pure. The soul, the baby comes into this world. The baby is pure. And then we soil ourselves. The negative thoughts, negative speech, negative actions. And here we're not even discussing negative speech, negative thoughts, negative actions. Prohibited thoughts, prohibited speech. Here we're talking about things that are kosher, glad kosher. But I'm, not, I'm going about it in a mundane way, without any higher intent, higher purpose. Which, as he explains, is actually a degrading experience. And that leaves a negative scar on, on, the, on the soul. And therefore the person needs a purification. The, so the clothes have been soiled. And before the soul could ascend, fully ascend in heaven and uh, enjoy a person, we have to wash away all the stains that have accumulated in our lifetime. So every time we indulge or enjoy or participate in the physical world without any higher thought, without a thought for the sake of heaven, it creates another stain. We soil ourselves. And therefore it needs a cleansing. It needs a purification. And that's the purification of Chibat HaKever. Like it says when Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, when he passed away, before he passed away, he looked up to heaven and he says, only God knows the truth. Although he was extremely wealthy, he was like a billionaire. He was like one of the wealthiest people in the world. Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, the author of the Mishnah, says, I did not enjoy one iota of this world. Nothing. Even though he lived in luxus, he lived in luxury. But he personally did not enjoy, everything he did was for the sake of heaven. There was nothing egotistical. There was nothing personal, egotistical. There was no indulgence. And everything that he did was permeated with godliness. Everything he did was serving God. Everything. Including making the money, eating. The Talmud describes his feast, his dinner. It would be a royal feast. And he would have at his table the greatest delicacies the world has ever seen. He was a friend with Antoninus, the emperor of Rome. And you know, he, he moved in the highest circles. The emperor was his best friend. And his table was like a royal table. And yet he did not benefit and enjoy one iota from this world. Everything that he did, because his mind and his heart, his consciousness, was totally focused and concentrated on the divine and godliness. Everything he did was permeated with godliness. Therefore, all his physical acts, his mundane acts of eating and drinking and sleeping and everything that he did, being intimate, everything that he did was permeated with godliness. It was nothing, it wasn't just a human activity, an independent activity, a survival. Everything was permeated with an awareness of godliness. So all of those experiences became holy experiences. So at all times, at all places, he was constantly connected to the source and he was constantly connecting everything around him to its source. And therefore, a tzaddik, someone like Abu the Prince, doesn't have to go through these cleansing experiences. Because he came into the world pure, pure, clean clothes, and he leaves this world pure. No stains. No stains. Because every single experience, every, every morsel of food that he ate, everything that he drank, everything that he experienced, was all pure and godly and holy. So there was not a single, there was no, there was, he didn't soil anything. No scars, no soil, nothing was soiled, everything was pure. So someone like that doesn't have to go through this cleansing process. So too, with regard to the vitality of the drops of semen emitted from the body with animal lust, by him who has not conducted himself in a holy manner during intimacy with his wife during her state of purity. Here too, the vitality is temporarily absorbed in the total evil of the three unclean klipa until the person repents. In the above instances, the fault lies not in the acts which in themselves are permissible, but rather in the person's intention in doing them, acting out of regard for bodily pleasure, not for the sake of heaven. Even in the most intimate, intimate acts which touches a person so deeply, because it's tied up to the very essence of the person. So especially at such a moment. We know that in, in Judaism, marriage is called Kiddushin, holiness. The bedroom is a holy of holies. It's God is present. When husband and wife are together, God is present. It's a, it's a moment of holiness. Shechina is between them. 
God's presence is felt. It's a holy moment. And therefore, it's for that reason that out of this union, the greatest miracle of all, the creation of a life, results from this union because the union itself is beautiful. The union itself is holy and divine. So if the union is permeated with love and a true love for each other and there's a sense of the, of the divine and there's a divine intent then that act becomes a holy act. It becomes Kiddushin, a holy act. That's why you go to the mikvah. That's why you introduce God into the bedroom. God becomes a partner into the whole experience. Because it's holy. You don't look down at it. Unlike other religions that preach celibacy, the ideal is celibacy. The uh, nun, the priest, the, uh, the monk. Um, in Judaism, the high priest is not allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. The holiest Jew is not allowed to enter into the holiest spot on earth on the holiest day of the year if he's a single person. He must be married. The uh, ideal of Judaism is that an act of intimacy is actually a very holy act. It's the bringing together of the masculine and feminine energies because within God, so to speak, is also there's a masculine and feminine that have been separated. And that's why there's this tremendous attraction and love between man and woman. It's really ultimately rooted in the divine, in the bringing together of the masculine and the feminine. When husband and wife are together, they bring... Hashem, so to speak. They unify Hashem. So, and they make the world whole. At, at its very core, its very essence. At, the, at its very atom. The very building block of creation. So when a person injects a sense of Hashem Shemayim, even in the most intimate act, then the act itself becomes a holy act, an uplifting act. It's not a degrading act. You know, in other religions, the whole concept of the honeymoon, you know where the concept of the honeymoon came? Because in their world, they looked at sexuality as something that's negative, as a compromise to human weakness. Because those who are strong would follow the path of the monks and the nuns and the priests. But it's a weakness of human nature. Most people cannot live up to that strength, that heroic sacrifice, other superhuman saintliness. And therefore, it's a compromise to human weakness. But to drown their sorrow, they would go on a honeymoon to distract themselves from, from the feeling, the sense of failure. Versus in Judaism, how do you spend the first seven days after the wedding? You have a Shavu Brachs. You celebrate with the family. It's a time of celebration because it's not about human compromise, it's not about human weakness. It's the holiest thing. Actually fulfilling the... Fulfilling the, fulfilling the whole purpose. In regards to the negative uh, process and the negative actions, what, isn't it the, what, what is the purpose of Chuba? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So we'll get to that. We're almost, that we're almost there. Releases the spark from a previous misdeed. Okay. You're anticipating what he's about to discuss. But I here, have one more question. Yes. Sorry. What about the pleasure derived from the experience, sexual experience that you don't have control over that, but you have, but it's exceedingly pleasurable. Absolutely. What about that? That It's like when you said it before, eating the piece of meat and doing it for the sake of heaven. Are you doing are you, you're doing this act for the sake of heaven, but the pleasure is immense. And uh, So is that like a, is that a reward for doing it for the sake of heaven? Or? 
It's, it's uh, an animal experience. Well, if without that pleasure, there would be no act. Um, the the reason why why it's so pleasurable ultimately is because, and it's interesting, the the deepest pleasure is when it's in when it's in a wholesome context, when it's an expression of love, when it's a soul connection, when two people are celebrating each other and celebrating being together and just celebrating each other, when husband and wife. Um, and they become one. That unity is the deepest, deepest pleasure. Uh, when the act becomes reduced to just the physical, it's impersonal. And it's just a physical act, it's actually not so pleasurable. It actually becomes very, people become very jaded and becomes very superficial. But when is it a truly satisfying act? And when is it a truly fulfilling act? And when is it a truly energizing act, an uplifting act? Is when it's done in the context of love and marriage. And uh, the more it's connected to its root, to its source, it's the ultimate unity, it's the closest you can get. It's two half-souls that become one and becoming one. And you're really unifying not only yourself, you're unifying really the whole universe. You're unifying the masculine energy within Hashem and the feminine energy within Hashem. And uh, when you experience that oneness, that is the deepest and deepest pleasure. Um, so that's that's a that's a holy pleasure. It's a good pleasure. But if it's just skin deep and personal. And skin deep, then, then it's then well, that's the difference between eroticism and intimacy. If it's just erotic, then it's just can't elevate it. Then it's not an elevating, and then it just becomes an addictive experience. And then you just need you just need to constantly come up with something even more. Uh, novel, or erratic, or something, yeah, to something to keep it alive, something to, to you know to tease your fancy, but it's because because it's just a, because it's really empty, and the more you satisfy, the hungrier you get, the, la- the less satis- the less satisfied you are. But when if it's if it's an expression of intimacy, then then it's then it's pleasure. Then it, it feeds in itself, it nourishes you, it energizes you, it elevates you. Then it's a wholesome experience. And that is the most pleasurable experience. You know, I mean, even the film, the, 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 the X rated films are very, uh, you know, are not, are very low level. If there's nothing personal, there's no. If there's something personal, then there's electricity. Then, it, then it's exciting. Then it's real. Then there's, it's, 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 if it's just skin deep, it's very, it's very boring. The mere fact of the existence of such things shows you the problem to begin with. I mean, it's, uh, if, if there wasn't a problem, these things wouldn't exist. People. But here, see, but that's already. Um, there we're talking about something that's prohibitive. But here we're talking about something that's permissible. A person in marriage with his wife. But if there's no higher purpose, if it's just, like you say, animalistic and skin deep, and then if there's no sense of holiness, and there's no sense of the sacred, and there's no sense of the divine, and you don't feel Hashem's presence, and you don't feel the beauty and the depth of that moment. And it's just like chicken soup. You know, you're hungry and you're... And, you know, and you have sex. Then it's degrading. It's superficial. It's very degrading. You've taken that powerful energy, the most powerful energy of all, and you've just degraded that experience and you've been degraded by it. 
versus if it's done with a sense of the sacred, with a sense of all the depth and the sense of the divine in the deepest, deepest way possible, deepest level, then it's the most energizing, elevating, inspiring, uplifting, and holiest moment. So it all depends on the person. If a person sanctifies himself before or not. You know, and, and you have many different levels. You have great, great rabbis, great tzaddikim. We're in a different level. You know, everything is divine by them. Everything in this physical world is just a metaphor for the divine. The love of husband and wife is just a metaphor for the divine. The, the son of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. So uh, he was a very spiritual person. From all the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, in a certain sense, he was, he was unique. Like he would go into a trance, sometimes all night long, totally oblivious to everyone around him. He would be in a different dimension. And this happened every Monday and Thursday. He was, he was like, when he would concentrate, he would sit still, but his spudik, his hat, would be sweating from the intense concentration. You know, so he had a certain depth and a certain level of depth. You know, he wasn't, he was like in a different world. It came time to get married. So his father tried to prepare him. The Alter Rebbe tried to prepare him. So he, so, he, so he learned with him what the meaning of marriage is, according to Kabbalah, according to Hasidus. When husband and wife come together, it's really the unification and the coming together of all the masculine energy of the divine and the feminine energy. And he was so excited because he was learning from his father. He was learning stuff he never, he never really learned before. But he, you know, he, was, uh, he was young and he was totally spiritual. As it came the night of the wedding, we actually realized that it's not just divine and spiritual, but it's actually physical. He actually fainted. He just, he just couldn't handle. He just couldn't handle. You know, so it's it's a different. This is a different. Uh, they say that the Hasidim of Rabbi Dovber, the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Dovber had one child, one son. He's called the Malach. He was an angel. He was also like purely spiritual. And his wife passed away young. And the Hasidim wanted that Rabbi Dovber should give birth to another child like that. So they pushed the Rebbe, he should remarry. So he agreed. He remarried. Because when it came time, again, his, his wife, his new wife, she, you know, she couldn't handle it. His comment later was, says, you know, she's no comparison to my first wife. My first wife... She just heard the door open, and she heard the door close. She was in a different world, you know. So here you're talking about the level of a tzaddik. It's, it's a whole different, that's a whole different ballgame. You know, the Alter Rebbe is not talking to tzaddikim. He's talking to us people, the average person, 99.9% of us. For a tzaddik, the whole thing is a whole different experience. Um, the tzaddik is always connected and attached to Hashem in, in the deepest way. And everything in this world is just a metaphor for the ultimate, for the divine, for the divine reality. Obviously, we're not on that level. But nevertheless, if we think of Hashem and we inject an awareness of the sanctity of the moment, of the sacredness of the moment, and it's done by going to the mikvah, and there's, there's a sense of holiness, and you bring that sense of holiness into the bedroom, into that act, then that act becomes becomes a holy experience. And if not, it just becomes a degrading experience. You've taken that powerful energy, the vitality of the drops of, of semen, semen, and it just becomes a, a lustful and a degrading experience. So the, the, the fault is not in the act. The act itself is a kosher act, glad kosher act. It was done in a holy context. It was done in a kosher context. The husband and wife. It's even a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to pleasure your wife. But nevertheless, since the intent, the intent behind it was just lustful and animalistic and skin deep, there was no love and there was no sense of intimacy, no sense of the sacred, of the divine, therefore that vitality descends into the three clippers and the person becomes degraded at that moment. Such is not the case, however, with forbidden foods and illicit prohibition, which, inasmuch as they are prohibited acts, drive their vitality from the three 
entirely unclean clico. These are tied and bound by the extraneous forces, the clico forever. So these, that's when the Torah says something is prohibited, the Torah says it's bound, it's tied, it's trapped, it can never be released forever. There's nothing, we cannot release it. The Torah says stay, stay off, stay away from it. It's off limits, hands off, because you cannot deal with it, you cannot engage in this. Everything else in the world, the Torah says engage. It's a mitzvah to engage. You have to engage in the world. That's why the Torah says that a Nazarite, one of the reasons why a Nazarite has to bring a sin offering. Why does a Nazarite have to bring a sin offering? When he's someone who swears he's not going to drink wine and he lets his hair grow. The Torah, someone who say he's not going to he's not going to drink wine, he's gonna stay away from wine for thirty days or sixty days or whatever, whatever time he specifies, he becomes an ascetic. So he has to bring a sin offering, a guilt offering, once he finishes his his Nazarite period. One of the reasons given is because he has to bring an atonement for the fact that he has forsworn in this world, because it's a mitzvah for a Jew to engage in the world. God gave this world for a Jew to engage in. A Jew has to engage in the world. We don't run away from the world. Asceticism is not the Jewish way. The life of the monk and the nun, this is not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is to engage in the world, but to engage in the world and elevate the world, transform the world, deal with the world, but elevate it. Do it in a holy context, bring holiness into the world, and elevate the world to, to godliness, and therefore transform and change the world. So a Jew has to bring an atonement why he stayed away from the world. Why would a Jew stay away from the world? Because sometimes the world is overwhelming. A person can't handle it. It's too much for him. So he has to, he has to retreat. He has to withdraw. Everyone knows themselves. There are moments in your life when you feel weak. And you can't deal with everything. You don't have the strength to deal with it. So you have to withdraw. You're not going to go into a bar if you're tempted, if you, if you can't help yourself. And a drunkard is not going to go into a bar. If you're struggling with alcohol, you're not going to put yourself in that position. So you have to remove yourself. But you should know it's, 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 it's a human weakness. The ideal is that a person should engage in the world and elevate with it. And that's the Jewish approach. That's the, that's the unique Jewish approach to life. We don't, we don't divorce ourselves from reality. We don't disconnect ourselves from reality. We, we engage in the world, but we deal with it in a holy way. We highlight and emphasize beauty, but there's a sense of modesty. You have to deal with it. You have to eat. You have to eat kosher. You have to have intimacy, but it's done in the proper context. So you deal with life. You elevate life. But then there's the arena which is off, off limits. The Torah says it's forbidden. You can't deal with it. Stay away from it. And next week we'll learn that there, that there are two exceptions. There are two ways how you could elevate even something that's prohibited. Uh, to be continued. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.